0: The following episode discusses explicit topics related to disgusting stimuli, ranges from phobic stimuli to the taboo incest and some very unusual paraphilias. Listener discretion is very much advised. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host Katie
0: and this is your co-host uh, Leo. How are How you Katie? doing? <laughs> Jinx. <Jake's laughs>
1: well, I I'm very excited today because we have a guest on and usually the next thing I say after that is who I met on Twitter, but I've actually <laughs> met Tom in person. So I'm I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Tom Armstrong who's going to talk to us all about disgust. How are you doing today, Tom?
2: I'm doing great. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I'm actually on your podcast.
1: Well,
0: awesome. <laughs> We're psyched about it. We've really, yeah, been looking forward to it for past couple of weeks since we decided to, the, the concept of it, started working on the outline. I'm very, very excited about the whole concept because I think your area of research is very, very interesting.
1: That's cool. right. So maybe we could start off by just asking you, what is Disgust?
2: I have to admit that this is actually a hard question for me to answer, even though I'm, you know, supposedly a disgust researcher. And so I'm going to ask you, what is something that's disgusted you recently or something that throughout, you know, maybe throughout your whole life has been something that really grossed you out?
1: I'll answer that first, because having known Leo for many years, I know that he has a particularly (laughs) high threshold for disgust, maybe higher than anyone I've ever met, and I'll let him use his examples later. It takes a lot to disgust Leo, especially when it comes to food or drink. Um, For me, (laughs) though, I actually find frogs pretty disgusting. And I feel a little mean saying that because I know people really love, some people really like frogs, find them very cute. But when I grew up in South Florida, they would get into the house and kind of surprise and jump in the way and um, it, it's just something to this day, even though I don't live in Florida anymore and there are fewer frogs, I just find them really gross and disgusting.
2: Okay. Really gross. I, I'm going to come back to that and I'm going to think about that for, for a minute. I need a little more grist for the mill. So, so, and Leo, I know you have a lot to say, but there's got to be something that grosses you out. Um, but here
0: I come. I have a fair amount of grist for that mill. Um, <laughs> so I, and I really don't, yeah, as Katie was saying, I don't disgust easy uh, so I have to think about it, <laughs> uh, because when I think about probably more, some moral transgressions, but even those, I'm like, I tend to be more relativistic about things. Um, what grosses me out? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to think about this.
1: I, I can volunteer some things that don't, in case we want to approach <laughs> yeah, so, it that way. So, so like, <laughs> one time I, we were sitting in my lab in grad school at, at Florida State and we noticed in the lab refrigerator there was orange juice that had been expired. I want to say over a well, year. It
0: two years. It was a two-year. It was two-year-old expired orange juice.
1: And and you know we're like that's that's pretty gross. We should probably throw that out. And Leo's like, no, no, <laughs> allow me. Let's <laughs> let's not waste that. And Leo drank it. Um and uh, it was really something.
0: <laughs> but I, I before you know just uh, I guess we probably should give a warning to our listeners that this is. This episode is going to be dealing with my gross habits, I suppose. I don't know, but um, I actually knew of that OJ because I bought it. We we bought it for interview weekend at like Sam's Club, right? And then we put it in the refrigerator, and, and, and it, it was in the basement of I don't know, Lanius Lab is there, and we we're studying for comps two years later. So I knew it was there. I knew I had bought it. And I also knew it came from Sam's Club, so I knew the provenance of it. And even though it had expi- indeed expired two years ago, and I swished it about, and I could see kind of chunks kind of floating in the bottom, I knew that that was just kind of like you know the pulp. And I swished it about, and I said, you know what? It says it's pasteurized. It's been it, it it hasn't been opened. It's been refrigerated this whole time. Let's test it out. Let's see how bad could it be. And that was just more of a test. Yeah. Opened it, and it was just fine. And this is just part of, you know, proof that uh, a lot of people worry, you know, like the whole the expiration dates. Those are yeah. suggestions. Those are yeah. really. There's no. Th- that's not a mandate. That's a suggestion, and they are pretty elastic. And um, I have horrified. Yeah, people but that- uh,
1: two years is like a, a li- like fine if it's a month or something, but like. <laughs> And like obviously you're okay, and I never knew that very interesting backstory to the orange juice. It sounds like there was a lot of rational like weighing of the various Absolutely. information. I didn't know that. To me, I could have yeah. remembered it being opened and like just not finished, and that you. On just, the other uh, hand,
0: I also do demonstrations uh, in my psychopathology class whenever we talk about anxiety disorders, uh, and we do I do a demonstration for well when OCD. Uh, which is, is obsessive compulsive disorder and the treatment for it, which is exposure. A demonstration that I do in my classroom is I dig my hand on the trash uh, in the classroom. And I don't, most of the students think like, so I dig and just a moment as I approach it, as I'm going to, I can see that, how, you know, about a third of the students start getting really agitated. <laughs> and they really don't want me to get in there. So I just put my hand in there and start, and I just purposely kind of rummage around, make a lot of noise, make sure that everything's, they can hear me rummaging and then I find something. There's usually something there left to eat or drink. So I put, I t- I take one of each, and I take a bite out of it and or drink. And one time, I, you know, I gargled, like, a little Starbucks that had been left over. And about a third of the class was just horrified. They really were horrified. A third of the class was really astounded, and then a third of the class was having Tom's reaction. Basically, you know, if the listeners could hear... Katie's giving me a look of (laughs) approval (laughs) absolute moral and moral disgust.
1: No, I think it's great. I'm just thinking of when I taught exposure, I showed a video of like David Tolan doing, I think it was called the OCD project. And he would, would put his hands on like the gas pump and then lick his hands or just lick the gas pump. Just as he was working with someone who was hand washing excessively for the treatment. And in that, my students were appalled. Like, they're yeah. like, what if they're going to get sick? And that's so gross. So if I had done what you just described, I I don't know what would have happened.
0: Well, I can tell you what happened. About a third of the students almost cry, and one of them will beg me every time they pull out, like, the sanitizer. Say, please, please wipe your hands before you continue. I'm like, I'm okay. Because that's the point, is to demonstrate that you can get sick much easier. And I, that's what, you know, that you, you, you bring objective... Facts yeah. into the fact that the, you know, the air con- the air conditioner on the unit, that really is spreading germs at a much higher rate yeah. than yeah. the, in- you know, the aerosol that it comes, than the ones that have been already there and likely inert on a can or something like that. And okay. this, and so what I also ask him, usually what I ask them is, you know, raise your hand if you have ever made out with a stranger at a club, Katie. <laughs>
1: I don't think that's within the scope of this show, (laughs) but I thank you for asking.
0: That, dear listeners, is a yes. (laughs) But uh, but if you think about it, if you've ever met a stranger you're shaking hands with us, you know, that was a part of our culture until very recently. People shook hands, uh, you know, at a party, you would go around shaking hands with people, exchange uh, that somebody, people may have just sneezed in their hand and Never thinking like my goodness, I am doing just as much I'm as much of a vector as putting my hand inside a trash. Uh, it's probably safer than shaking hands with 20 people at a party, and certainly less than uh, you know one of the co-hosts of Psychodrama going to a club and meeting one or two random strangers and then making out. by you know, before the <laughs> night up. and we'll get let we'll let the audience decide who that might be. <laughs>
2: I was thinking about this recently because I do something much tamer than what you do, Leo, which is the classic lick the bottom of your shoe. Right. I learned oh, that that's Steve Holland and I've seen David Tolan do it at a restaurant at an A B C T conference. I think it was wow. the one in um I need to outside out DC. Game. Yeah, I saw I was like, you know, I looked over it, I saw something in the corner of my eye and, you know, at his table he's licking the bottom of his shoe. Um, I don't know if that's tamer. That's pretty
0: that's pretty
2: out there. Wow. I was just thinking though that like are people gonna do that post-COVID and maybe maybe right. we need more leos out there doing these things because it seems like maybe the sensibilities have changed or maybe yeah, they, maybe like, they'll
0: go back quickly. i'm not sure yeah i don't know so i don't know but if that's two your different original,
1: things but, right because yeah. one is like a germ thing and another thing is like i mean they're connected right tom but to one extent like i think about like when we learned that COVID doesn't spread as much on surfaces or something like that
0: I and
1: know. but it but breathing around other people yes. and that's not something that we usually think of as disgusting yeah. whereas i think people oh, would be more point. disgusted that's not washing point. their hands so yes. how does that all play into it
2: you know okay so there, i had an interesting discussion on twitter i don't have the best um twitter etiquette and you know and sometimes i'll just you know tag someone who probably doesn't want to be tagged um, oh,
0: i do the same but, thing i don't know oh, what yeah like twitter to, to, is. to ask
2: them a question you know because i think that like twitter <laughs> is a help desk and um but i asked you know this uh, you know, what someone who's sort of a leader in thinking about disgust right now, Josh Tiber, about why um, why it is that there's not less, why, why there isn't more disgust right now during the COVID pandemic, if, if because in evolutionary models right now, people mm-hmm. think about disgust primarily as a disease avoidance emotion, as you know, evolved under the selective pressure of pathogens. Mm-hmm. And so, like now we're facing this you know global pathogen threat. Why isn't everybody like vomiting and disgusted all the time? Mm. Um, but you know, one of the things that's interesting about um about COVID is yeah, the there's not like visible symptoms. I hear there's mm. a dry cough, but you know, um it's not a wet cough, you know, wet cough would be grosser. Um really? no one's bleeding um or you know hacking up phlegm everywhere. And that yeah, that aerosol transmission's not that gross. It's quite invisible. Mm. And it's not really yeah, traced back to something that's really gross like you know um we can we can trace contamination being gross and be grossed out by things if the sort of you go back in the line of contamination there's something really gross and the thought of contamination activates the imagery of something really gross but that's kind of missing here like a frog a frog well that's <laughs> interesting. If it was
0: transmitted by a frog right so if it was animal transmitted what you're saying is that if there was a more clear gross stimulus that was the the vector for it people would be the the threshold for it to be grossed out about it would be much higher, much lower, yes. I guess. Yeah. Okay.
2: And, you know, an example that I, I heard him mention on a podcast was like, um, mosquitoes and malaria, you know, like, uh, um, there's not a lot of disgust there because mosquitoes are annoying, you know, they're mm-hmm. not disgusting. Mm. Um, and the contact with them, I mean, and actually, if you think about it, it's quite gross, you know, they're like sucking your blood, but it's kind of, you know, that's not the most salient
0: emotion. That's the most salient part of the yeah, you situation. just are more annoyed and enraged at the fact that they dare to bite you. I mean, that's my that's my thing. And I when I squick, here's what I do. And this is kind of not I don't know if it's disgusting, but I do it when I kill one of on my skin. And I did this a couple of days ago. I leave him there as an example. And I don't know if it's true <laughs> or not to the other mosquitoes. And I'm like, this is what's happening. And I and I know I don't know if there's any is there are any mosquito experts? I would love to know if they can smell death. And I'm yeah. like, I, I would like to believe it. I'm like, that's right, efforts That's one of your brothers down right there. And yeah. you better smell. It. Let it this be a uh, lesson what's gonna happen to you. And I walk around with, you know, a dead mosquito in my skin. Which yeah. it's a small price to pay to make an example <laughs> of it.
2: I think they they have to protect their psyches from the threat of death. You know, there's terror management so and mosquitoes. I think for sure. Um, so I, you, okay. This is, oh sorry sorry sorry. go ahead well please. if i can synthesize these two examples yeah they're really interesting because your lack of disgust really gets at the sort of um the fundamentals so um in thinking about disgust the, the sort of grandfather of disgust is paul rosin and he's mm-hmm. reading cultural anthropologists and before that he's studying food and he's studying taste aversion learning i think um uh and so he's coming from food to disgust because disgust is you know intimately related to food it's kind of the anti-hunger so he's conceptualizing disgust as being about uh food and rejecting food that is contaminated yeah. and uh revulsion at the prospect of orally incorporating a contaminant um okay. and he defines disgust kind of functionally uh, or something's disgusting if it were to touch perfectly good food and render it inedible mm-hmm. so that's like, and then he raises and stretches out from there and then he's you know he, he mentions, yeah, this probably has to do with disease transmission pathogens, but h- you know his real focus at first is on the mouth and on food. And then he stretches it out to include uh, reminders of our animal nature um, and uh, that uh, domain of disgust has taken a lot of criticism lately um, because it actually is kind of this existential psychology where he's mm-hmm. arguing that, like, our animal nature reminds us of our, our corporality and our um, vulnerability to death. And then beyond that, there's a sort of interpersonal disgust, and there's this moral disgust. and those are kind of the domains of disgust with mm. rosin But the oral disgust remained the he called it core disgust. So the idea was that was developmentally first, and that was sort of you know the the qualia and the more the the expression of disgust was sort of based on that response to the threat of orally incorporating a pathogen. And so, you know, you have nausea, you have, um, you know, this facial expression, that's about closing mm. the, the mouth or, or ejecting the mouth's contents. And mm. so he really, you know, the early thing about disgust really about the mouth. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, some people are coming back around and saying, listen, we've been way too sort of liberal in our theorizing about disgust. And like now disgust is basically meaningless, right? Mm. It's, it's become so loose that, any instance of people uttering the term disgust, mm. like the theory expands to, to account for that. So you disgust me with your tax plan. Oh, wow, like mm. disgust must do this now. Oh, disgust doing everything. And people oh, are just I theorizing see. all these wild functions that are they're great stories. But then it's kind of interesting, you have this guy, Ed Roisman, at the University of Pennsylvania, who has has like this kind of hardline conservative take on disgust um, that's quite sensible. And he's worth reading. And um, he's been writing about this for like, Uh, At least 20 years, and saying, like, listen, we just need to slow down. Um, Disgust is about losing your appetite, disgust Mm. is um, uh, object focused dyspepsia. It's when, and you have to feel that uh, loss of appetite, that sort of disturbance in your stomach. You know, that's Mm. like, that is really um, like
0: a necessary uh, criterion for disgust. So, I'm sorry, this is really interesting because I think that's the part that I was most kind of wanted to get. Toward to talk about, it because a lot of the disgust um, literature that I've been looking into is uh, relating to disgust-based morality, right? So yeah. what you're saying is that there's, a, from Paul Rosen's work, a lot of the, the idea that maybe morality and what we consider moral or immoral in a culture and society may be linked in some way to disgust feelings. However, there's now kind of a, a counter to that branch of research saying which is just kind of really limited rather than expanding disgust to be towards our morality so we just we keep it yeah. to, you know being able to keep food down period everything else is, uh you know just a, an extraneous construct yes okay because I, I do, I mean, I still link it. Yeah, I still link it together as morality. Sorry, Katie,
1: go ahead. Oh, oh I was just going to say, I was thinking, yeah, that's more of like a distaste for something. But taste, obviously, is getting at the same idea as disgust. Like you were saying, it's maybe just a synonym, like the moral disgust, that maybe it's just not a preference for something or a distaste for yes, something. But it's yeah. not um, It's not what you're talking about, where you you're feel like pretty sick kind of from it.
2: Yeah. And but, you know, that's so that's one take. Right. And what's kind of interesting is that um, uh, Ed Roisman, who's who's made this argument, he has found instances of what he calls moral dyspepsia. So having that sort of um, what he would call, you know, like genuine moral disgust,
0: Mm -hmm, although mm
2: -hmm. he's he's trying to actually abandon the term disgust. Mm. for more technical terminology that can parse these states of discomfort that people mm. sort of lump together as disgust. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but so, but let's go with, with genuine disgust for now. So um, uh, he, have you heard of the the curious tale of Mark and Julie? I, I actually,
0: I think that's the first time you and I exchanged a Twitter was when you put it yeah. up there and you were like, yeah, I think they need to change the story. But um, please tell it because I said, no, this, this happens. So Mark and Julie...
2: Um, so this is this is fictional, right? It's a vignette. I think John Height may have made this up, and the and, um it's you know trying to tease apart. I think these sort of um, formalist and consequentialist moral judgments. And so the idea is that uh, there's this uh, couple, and or no, I'm sorry, gave away. There's there's a brother and a sister, and they go off to college. They go to different colleges. They're really close, and um, they really want to sort of meet up, and they decide to rent a cabin and. To really just sort of reconnect, they decide to have sex, and they decide to you know use all the necessary prophylaxis, and it's entirely consensual. Um, and you ask you about that. Well, what about what Mark and Julie did in that cabin? Do you think that was uh, you know morally right, right. morally wrong? Yeah. And people say it's wrong, and right. then you ask them why, and then they're morally dumbfounded, right? They can't right. they can't explain why. They're just like ah, it's it's, it's just worse. wrong, right? Yeah, it's just gross. It's just wrong. And so you know, I think like it would be, you know, have you seen those examples of like people going back and finding the, the, the famous people in the history of psychology like little Albert and mm-hmm. you know, little Hans? I want to find the real Mark and Julie, you know, just see where they are now.
0: <laughs> and that, and that's when I, I replied them. to Twitter and you and I said, and I, I sent him a link to various cases of people who, there's a movement of people kind of trying to gain recognition for what they call is genetic sexual attraction.
2: Oh, that's right. I remember now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and so, it, it's really interesting and I, so it gets to a lot of you know the the ideas of where you know sexual taboos may come from, and certainly I'll try I'll try to keep my th- my thoughts wrangled. So so good luck to us. Uh, so first, uh, so there are cases in which, for example, one of the archetypes is a parent gives up uh, a child uh, very young. So they give them up for adoption when they are very young. So they mm-hmm. do not raise them or anything like mm-hmm. that. They just kind of give them away, and then after uh, ten you know twenty years or so they reunite. And they meet each other and all of a sudden there's this kind of connection which is understandable right given the fact that they do chain that they share 50% of their genes so they're going to be very similar mm. and they may have something that they're very familiar to each other so very quickly there's this quick connection that for and now you know I would say for people who have maybe low boundaries and high sensation seeking or other you know other other traits they end up having sexual relationships and a very tight sexual connection mm. now as our audience is probably right now, you know, probably vomiting in their mouth as they think about, you know, parents. I I want you, dear audience, to please hold your your moral judgment and just think about, you know, uh, times in, other times in history in in which whole dynasties were founded essentially by similar, you know, similar parents, siblings or closely related cousins or, uh, you know, the incest taboo, is fairly flexible yeah. within the, uh, in, within the human species, depending on culture and time. The discussion of incest is interesting. I'm
2: like out of my element here, um, but I think you know, yeah. we were chatting before welcome, the show. Welcome to
0: psychotrama where, yeah. where we we really just about ten percent of what we cover is any of our expertise. Then we just go on deep wild speculations. So. <laughs> well, to but, be
1: fair, you do yeah. you you do. I mean, I wonder in your clinical practice yeah. also if this is an issue that comes up because you yeah, mine. Yeah. Yes. Yes. sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess I should say that. Yeah. Cause in, in my area, that is exactly where CMA and for those who listeners to psychodrama may have heard this before, but I do have a, a small pet private practice in which I do uh, psychosexual evaluations and risk evaluations. And many of the scenarios that I do encounter are incest cases. And one of the predict- you know, one of the risk factors are, um, step-parent relationships especially those in which the parent comes in very late you know they haven't yeah. raised a child from yeah. very young and there doesn't seem to be this parental affiliation that exists and uh, but rather they come into the, the child's life when there are adolescents or preteens mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. so there's something about not be, not being raised and there's also a lot of studies looking at children that are being raised in, like in Israel actually like in kibbutz Yes, that are raised together. Yeah. You know, they, they 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 grow up together as siblings, very very close. As they grow up, they actually don't experience sexual as much sexual attraction yes, as I've you would expect, yeah. because they're like close, like no, that's like my brother or my sister, yeah. Uh, yeah. as opposed to if they were raised uh, not as 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 close together, even though they're not biologically yeah. related. So yeah, I do see this yeah. as an as an interesting area, and
2: yeah, you know, just to bring it all back. So you mentioned. Reaching into the garbage can and you know finding like a the last (laughs) sip of a latte and drinking, everyone's like Um, ah, but you're thinking of like sure I could acquire some disease like right there's some threat there there is Mm -hmm, a risk mm -hmm. right but it's it's really low and I think that again I'm out of my element here on I'm not an incest PhD but uh, (laughs) but there's I think that risk of you know um, the accumulating risk of genetic illnesses and things like that um, from Cousining from, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. making uh, you know, reproducing with your cousin. That's, um,
0: that's pretty, probably pretty small. Right? It's actually really low. I've yeah, looked really this low up. Right? I yeah. ended up looking it up because of, you know, went down this rabbit hole of that. And yeah. yeah, the reality is that if it's like even first cousins, it's not as high. And if you think about legislature in half of the United States, 25, about 25 States, it is legal for you to marry yeah. your first cousin. Yeah. And part of that is that, you know, when in a geographic location, Um, people were you know mates were not that easily available as now you didn't have tinder in the 1800s i'm going to
2: say that love is love here because i met a couple who were really lovely from uh sweden i'm not going to say the town of sweden um and they they were friends of a friend and they visited me in nashville tennessee now i got married in nashville and i noticed when i was signing something that it said and this is awful it said that you know, in, in Tennessee, same-sex marriage is illegal, and then it said below that, in Tennessee, cousin uh, marriage is, is illegal, right. and it pointed this yeah. out in there, Right, um, right. yeah, and, uh, but so while I was in Tennessee, these, this nice young couple um, from Sweden is visiting me, and I found out later on that they were cousin lovers, and that they actually had to come out to their friends as cousin lovers. Because their friends knew them as cousins. Right. And then, and I don't know the full backstory. And then they, yeah. you know, they fell in love. And, yeah. um, you know, I wouldn't want to ban them from being able to get married. And, you know, a, a peer of mine here at Whitman, um, he actually, he just retired, uh, um, Chas McGann. He's a cultural anthropologist. And he was, I forget who, which, um, who wrote this, but he was writing about or, or reading um, some work on marriage. And someone was describing Marriage and cousins in a way that really made me think back to disgust, and so it was describing cousins as a sweet spot in terms of familiarity mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and novelty, mm-hmm, right, right? And you mentioned these dynasties, yeah. And you also mentioned sort of the um, the sense of affinity that you have with someone who shares right. your genes, and so maybe there's something really there. But I, I think it's really fascinating because if you look at um, Rosin's work on disgust and food, um, a lot of people know Rosin's work, probably without knowing it, they've heard the term omnivorous dilemma from Michael Pollan. And that's Mm -hmm. a term from Paul Rosin to describe um, our relationship with food, that we have this this really ambivalent relationship with food, where as omnivores, we're not specialists, we can't just eat like um, bamboo all day. And so uh, so Mm -hmm. we've got to get out there and try new stuff. At the same time... um, we do prefer things that are safe that we know won't make us sick. And so there's this weird tension between familiarity and novelty with food. I think maybe it's possible. No one's looked at this. I'm giving away the hypothesis. But maybe there might be something going on there with, with uh, uh, shared genes and cousins. I don't know.
0: That's my guess. I mean, that the, when I've thought about it is I think uh, I like that whole, you know, there's, you know, that perfect distance between familiarity and not. So you have enough in, in common, but it's not. And I think about, the, you know, the fact that there are so many states and countries around the world in which, that taboo is not doesn't it it may exist in, to some degree maybe but it's not strong enough to, for it to be illegal. And yeah. so that that's and the term kissing cousins has to come from somewhere. So yeah. you know what <laughs> I mean like so this is enough of a phenomenon that it's known. So I think what it's interesting then to to think about is what is it about cultures and we talked about this with other guests when we talked about with Hal Herzog when we were talking about eating eating your pets. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh-huh. sent sent Maddie, which is Katie's dog, scampering out the door, out the <laughs> room. Apparently, um, she did
1: not like the sound of that.
0: <laughs> would be, you know, what what do you think then uh, influences um, disgust in one culture versus not regarding yeah. eating one type of food versus not? Yeah.
2: Okay, so we've gotten disgust, we've gotten cousins, we got we got we've got the cousin <laughs> taboo. Yes. And then we we're going to go back to so we're going back to the cultural contingency of disgust, really, culture disgust. and what was the thing you just mentioned? Disgust and food, Oh, yeah, eating your pet because the right. eating your pet's a pretty good one because there's this whole idea of the moral circle, you know, and like there's a what pretty is compelling world? like the idea that like the people who you afford dignity and rights, you know, and who are within the moral domain who you mm-hmm. know, and then outside of that, you're excluded. So that's really interesting because, like, you know a lot of the history of disgust, and prejudice, which we're getting to later, is um, you know using the rhetoric of disgust to tarnish uh, you know ethnic groups, um, this uh, you know religious groups, um, uh, sexual identity groups, and push them outside the moral circle. But um, like, you know the the, the dis- projection of disgust make- renders people sort of animal and inhumane and, and in, inhuman. But it's interesting to bring you know animals into the moral circle by making them your pets, and you can no longer eat them. So you know this incest thread is really interesting. And um, so you, you mentioned moral disgust earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ed Roisman, when he found that people were experiencing genuine dyspepsia uh, to Mark and Julie, the cousins, mm-hmm. or no, not cousins, the brother and sister, um, having sex, you know, he called that moral disgust. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, in more recent evolutionary theories and Josh Tiber's theory and, and Deb, Deborah Lieberman's theory, um, there's a domain of disgust, sexual disgust, mm-hmm. that is about... Um, uh, it's revulsion at the prospect of sex with, uh, an unfit mate and, um, Mm -hmm. or inappropriate mate. And so someone Mm -hmm. who's too old, too young, too Mm -hmm. related. Um, and so that's how you could also spin, um, incest. Um, and that's, it's interesting too, because obviously, you know, disgust and sex intertwined and, but a lot of, a lot of sexual disgust is not really, this same kind of sexual disgust, it's about mate fitness, mate appropriateness. A lot of sexual disgust is just about pathogens.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so to kind of come back to what disgust is, um, you know, the core of disgust in, in more recent evolutionary theories, it's sort of focused on pathogens and preventing um, contact. Um, in the in a, in a Tiber and Colleague theory, I just mentioned the sort of three domains of disgust theory, um, there's nothing special about the mouth. Any kind of contact with parts of the body um, it's kind of an even playing field, but in some of these other evolutionary theories, like um, from Kupfer and, and Fessler—I hope I'm getting these people's names right—in um, in, in other evolutionary theories um, that focus on pathogens, there's still sort of a recognition that this oral route of, you know, transmitting acquiring well acquiring pathogens is particularly important, and that you know you can see in the disgust response that you know where the sensations are in the body, the expression on the face, um, that it's really about contaminated foods mm. um and so you know again sort of the core of disgust is about um you know contaminated foods but then there's this question about how disgust might be repurposed and mm. um you know what's going on with uh disgust towards how people use their body um towards right. our own bodies um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know there really is this sort of ambivalence about corporality in humans at least in this sort of um uh european american tradition that i'm familiar with and that a lot of these psychologists are reading i'm not sure how how cross-cultural that is
0: right
2: um and then there's the frogs you know there's there's katie and her frogs and you
0: know in the back of my head i'm thinking is that really disgust
1: or is it more of a phobia
0: yeah like imagine yeah that's that's a good question so how do you differentiate that phobia from disgust or are there disgust-based phobias
2: okay so katie you're eating a, a, a sandwich that you like and I show you a picture on my phone of a frog, do you lose your appetite and stop eating?
1: Um probably briefly, yes, I think so. And it depends on how froggy the picture is. So okay. if it's like a Kermit the frog, I'm cool. <laughs> but if it's like I let's this is where maybe it is public. If I'm looking on Instagram and there are pictures of particularly slimy frogs, yeah. like I might that person. And I don't I'm not afraid, but yeah. it does gross
0: me out yeah so is the sliminess is it the slimy or the yeah if you were to identify like the main stimulus yeah yeah this
1: this
2: gets into sort of my particular approach because you know i'm like i'm not very theory driven i'm like methods driven i have an Mm. eye tracker and i just try to do everything i can do with an eye tracker and that's what i'm interested in that's you know like i'm not good at writing grants because that's like the story you know what can i do with a side tracker so but i measure people looking you know how how much people look away from things and Mm -hmm. it turns out it's a really good indicator of disgust like it really tracks self reported disgust and um it distinguishes how people respond to say images of people harming themselves versus Mm -hmm. images of vomit and feces Mm -hmm. um where it's the vomit and the feces that people look away from not other Mm -hmm. unpleasant images Mm -hmm. um even ones that are really disturbing Mm -hmm. um and so i would say yeah like if that's really important to me in determining if you're experiencing disgust. Like, are these pictures you're seeing on Twitter, or on Instagram, are they bothering you? And, and the reason I'm concerned about that or, or interested in that is because um, concrete sensory features play a really outsized role in eliciting disgust. In fact, mm. some people, and, you know, I'm heavily influenced by this uh, person, Ed Roisman, who I've met once over a phone call. Um, that's the only contact I've had with him when I, for, for a class I was doing. Um, but, you know, he claims that there, there are no abstract elicitors of disgust. And so Mm. what that means is like classic emotion theory, emotions are listed by they're listed by a propositional thought about a state of affairs in the world. So, like, you know, you slighted me, Leo, Mm -hmm. um, when you you did this and that, like that was insulting to me. Mm -hmm. And um, now I'm angry. Right. So there's some sort of appraisal about state of affairs in the world. Um, You know, disgust doesn't seem to be that sophisticated and it's more like a reflex. It's just sort of, you know, registering these sensory features and the sensory features themselves really drive disgust. And we know that in part because of uh, this classic experiment, you may have heard of it with um, uh, Rona Rosen's first experiments where he takes fudge and he shapes it into oh, like a, yeah. a disc shape or into a dog poop shape. <laughs>
1: yeah. And,
2: you know, when it's offered to you shaped as dog poop, people are like, I don't want that. I'm not putting <laughs> that in my mouth. Like everybody. Everybody does. Like, yeah, like nearly like 80%, 90% don't want to eat the fudge. and then But they know it's an illusion. It's fudge, right. You know, yeah. but you can't get over the sensory-driven
0: disgust.
1: Would that we're, we're, gross we're, ooh, you sorry. out, Leo?
0: Go ahead. No, Was you know that- what's so interesting? No, I don't think so. And I actually thought I, I, I always forget I would love to do that for a demonstration in my class. Would be to bring Nutella, bring delicious Nutella and say, here, I have some crackers and put them in. And then, oh, and then also put it on a slice of toilet paper yeah. and lick it off of the toilet paper. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great?
1: Is that like for educational purposes or more for your own enjoyment of freaking them all out? Uh, both. I think it would <laughs> Why be. Can't it be <laughs> Why can't it be both?
0: Why can't it be both? You know what it actually made me think about is that there's obviously, people, you know, if we think about it in a, in a bell curve, right? Yeah. There seems to be people who are on that edge that are very yeah. probably like, they're yeah. a very strong reaction against it. Yeah. And there are, you know, the average person who's gonna be like, ugh, gross, but they're not gonna be having a phobic reaction or just like, ugh, get that away. Yeah. And there are some people who are gonna be having not only they're gonna have an approach response to yes. it, right? Yes. So that you'll you'll buy the gag, you know, you yeah. will be like, oh my god, yeah. especially uh, the archetype, like a 13 year old boy, like I certainly did, would go to the gag gift shop or and you would buy the fake the, the fake poop or the yeah. fake boogers yeah. and then try to play that game. Yeah. And then you. <laughs> Katie has made a gross-down face, right? And so clearly, Katie and I are on, yes. on, on the opposite side of the, of the bell curve of that. And there are people yeah. who are going to be so far on that bell curve that are going to be at, almost attracted to it and may have actual fetishes associated uh-huh. with uh-huh. disgusting, uh, with disgusting stimulus. And that's when it yeah. becomes, to me, really interesting uh-huh. as to how can how can a stimulus elicit that that, but in general, elicits a reaction, how can it be turned into not only just an approach. Stimulus, yeah. but uh, but a super approach. Like I yes. really like that, and that's fascinating. Yeah. I you know I have some thoughts on that too
2: that we can come yeah. back to
0: because I it, think yeah that sounds good. It's, it's, let's make it's, a list. Now um, we have talked a little so bit about frogs. Your so reaction to the frogs? Yeah, oh, frogs. Yeah, the frogs, yeah. The frogs.
2: I mean, <laughs> I think yeah, it does sound like that's grossing you out. And um, you know, it's interesting too. i I don't mean to trigger you too much for this, but like you've probably seen the ones that have the babies on their back, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Is it the eggs? <laughs> what is it? But that's know, like
0: gonna...
2: that's trypophobia. Oh, that's a trypophobia index, uh, right?
0: Yeah, that's what I. That's yeah, and like there's your the holes. holes, and
2: so trip. You know, trypophobia is is interesting too. It. I mean, some. Oh, there I just I'm forgetting this good article. There's a, there's an interesting article on that suggests that's related to disgust. Um, there's another perspective that um a lot of what we call disgust is actually um an ectoparasite defense mechanism. Mm-hmm that's distinct from the sort of um, oral pathogen ingestion defense mechanism of disgust and that like the creepy crawly skin crawl sensation right um is about this ectoparasite defense and this article um by uh tom kupfer and uh daniel fessler is just it will make your skin crawl because it just we take for granted the sort of uh privilege of not living in a world where you are sure. subject to ectoparasites. Sure. I mean Yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. A lot a lot of species spend like seventy percent of their waking time grooming. Yeah. And lose like thirty percent or more of their vitality just th- you know, to blood sucking insects. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so there seems to be a defense mechanism associated with that threat that um, sort of sensitizes your skin, makes your skin crawl, stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah the frogs, I mean it seems like part of it is definitely their um appearance and their sliminess and they seem to be um you know if you take this in the evolutionary direction those kinds of textures and um uh maybe you know you know dank fetid swamps those are Mm -hmm. also going to be places where there are germs Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and uh so you know it does sound like disgust i I only ask because i had a friend who grew up in jamaica and he had a phobia of frogs
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um because when he was growing up and you'd think you get maybe get more exposure um but uh like reptiles amphibians sometimes jump on him and mm-hmm. you know, there mm-hmm. you know it seems like a factor is just the unexpected nature i've heard you know people with similar uh fears around birds you know like if you get bombed right. by a bird. but then people off, often the folks i know who are afraid of birds are also disgusted by them
1: yeah, that's that's so true about the surprise part about it when I go when I visit my family in South Florida And if i'm going for a walk with my sisters or something and a frog dumps I will like run into the road which is oh. clearly more dangerous than the frog hopping in <laughs> front of me But it's just like a response that I have huh. to it now. That's more of the phobic response for right. sure And you're right It's I don't like go out of my way to avoid things. I try to be a good practicing cognitive behavioral mm. therapy but I do, that is my initial response to, yeah. things, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. I can tolerate it, but it, and I, like I said, in my Instagram feed, I do, I don't like when I come across a frog or something like that. Is there anything about the color green? Because I noticed that represents disgust a lot, yes. like the emoji. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. out.
2: Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And I mean, there's, some, vomit is often represented as green, even though it's not yeah. really green. You know, it's funny, too, because, like, people say puke green. Isn't puke green a color that people dislike? So but maybe guess, there's some associations yeah. with vomit. But um, Boogers. And then, Boogers like, slime. Green sometimes. Bitter vegetables, like, oh. you know, overcooked bitter vegetables. Oh. That's another sort of, um, you know, thing to not take for granted is that, you know, I actually the think that moment. green
0: bees are gross. I will t- There you go. Now, he's like, green oh, yeah. bees. I don't like them. I, I mean, I'll eat them, but I, like, I, I have to, like, put them in butter or something. I just so were they I overcooked like though, because when
2: I grew up, like the the green vegetables were just steamed and blasted, yeah. And then they would taste yeah. bad, and like if they were Brussels sprouts, all yeah. the sulfur would come out.
0: They're not particularly tasty. Yeah, I actually did it. I, I stuck my tongue out. If Paul Ekman was in my office, he would have said yes. That was absolutely a disgust face. I, I stuck my tongue out like the kind of <laughs> like, okay. I don't. I don't like two year old orange juice. Yum. Green beans. Bleh. And it was you know that's interesting. <laughs>
2: That's an interesting. <laughs> discussion too, like one of you know one of the projects for like Paul Rozin was dis- distinguishing between distaste and disgust, and distaste being this oral rejection reflex for bitter or sour foods that they can then be associated with foods through nausea, um, and then um, and then disgust. And for Rozin, you know, he, he thought that disgust disgust involved ideational properties of the stimulus, meaning you know abs- more abstract properties, like it's about its origin or nature. Um,
0: and so, like with the green beans, you're not like, oh, these foul green
2: beans. Like no, you it's just like the way they
0: taste. Yeah, it's like the way they taste, and I have a bad association because my mom would be like you're not getting out of the out of the table until you finish them. I'm like, I'll just There's push them around.
1: There,
0: there is a pairing there. Right. There is. Something. It's so interesting. You made that when you think about the the suddenness, because I've had now two significant others who had that kind of sudden onset of a phobia, and one was the, the same thing, the ranidaphobia, the the frog because a frog landed on her in Florida. And she didn't, I don't think she was aware of it before, but ever since that day, the moment that the frog, little tree frog landed on her, and after that, she would always just be watching behind, like, oh, make yeah. sure there's nothing there. And then my my current significant other, we went to, to Baja in Mexico, and it was like our first abroad trip together, hanging out, and she'd never eaten a lot of the exotic foods that i t- like to have, and I love octopus, love octopus. Uh-huh. So I said, you know, she's like, I wanna try everything you wanna do, and I'm like, great, you're gonna love octopus. And this, you know, this octopus lands on our table there, and I, I couldn't tell. I was too focused on the delicious octopus in front of me. So, but I, I cut a piece for her, and she ate it like a trooper that she is. But then shortly, you know, shortly after after the trip, she told me like she's like, I hated that octopus. I did not. And she's like, she had a phobic reaction, and to this day, octopi or octopodes, uh, which both are acceptable according to Webster's Dictionary, or future. <laughs> For the for the plural of 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 octo of octopodes, it freak they freak her out, and I, I think she has literally given this the, the the creepy crawlies. And I've tried wow. to I've tried wow. to kind of try to very very tenderly and very caringly yeah. I've taken a tentacle and put it around her face, and you know like, like <laughs> tell me exactly which of these things what what is it that you find disgusting as she recoils in the couch. Um, uh, and, and she has, um, identified that it, it's the, it's the little sucker. She's like, oh, the, the, suckers sucker. the birds kind of, oh. that's what does it, which reminds me a lot of okay. the, of the, 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 theory behind the tripophobia, which is this yeah. hole that's in the yeah. skin that kind of, it, it could be related to either, uh, poisonous animals that have rings on them or, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, we're yeah, talking yeah. about the kind of like the, uh, the parasites that's interesting because I was thinking another
2: thing that comes up like one someone who influenced Paul Roslin was Mary Douglas um, cultural anthropologist and she uh, you know spent a lot of time like you know in addition to doing ethnographic work but like also reading like the Old Testament and food prohibitions Mm -hmm. and she had this theory that it's these things that are these these foods that are kind of like liminal in terms of categories and they don't Mm. you know fit into a category at all maybe right? Um, and it's those it's the animals that don't fit neatly into categories are sort of um, you know, atypical uh, that that end up having, you know, being taboo to eat. And uh-huh.
0: um, but you know, you think about some of the things. So neither have, fish nor fowl. Something in between exactly. is going to be like okay.
2: Yeah, like um, you know, crustaceans maybe for example, because yeah, they live yeah. in the water, but then they're yeah. not like fish. Um, and also like oh, I think those little sow bugs, roly polies, right? Aren't those? Oh right? yeah, I'm gonna get a checked Um, so. From
1: uh, our roly-poly audience that is always weighing in to make sure that yeah. our facts right, it's t- it's time to just eviscerate Tom on Twitter if that roly-poly uh, reference was wrong. I could
2: I could use the traffic, you know, I'll take anything. If that attention <laughs> yeah, works for me that's, too. That's how um, we feel. But like, uh, you know, you think about what people often have phobias about in, the, in terms of animals, and it's snakes mm-hmm. and spiders. And <laughs> snakes, not enough legs. Spiders, too many. <laughs>
1: um
2: and so you know octopi Our also there's good eight legs bad <laughs> yeah it's simple it's simple um you know and octopi too they're kind of freaks of nature in that sense right right um and kind it's of slimy what do you think katie what how are
0: you how do you feel about octopodes?
1: i'm i i feel neutral to them and oh, okay. because my husband will eat the tentacles and all kind of joke about ordering them with extra suckers and i just think <laughs> that's funny like i don't yeah. i don't find that um I, so I don't know why, and I don't I don't eat That's fish, so I don't eat meat, but I don't, um, and I do actually think part of that is that makes it a little easier is easily being disgusted by eating mm. um, yeah. animal meat because I was pretty picky about what I would eat before I was uh-huh. vegetarian. Uh-huh. How did you get into this line of research? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is so fascinating. Obviously, we're like throwing yeah. a lot at you. How would you get into this?
2: Well, uh, I mean, it's not a very exciting story. In that, um, you know, it doesn't begin with like, you know, some profound experience with disgust or something like that. Mm. It begins with me, like, kind of almost by chance, working in a disgust lab and applying to grad school and being like, hmm, who can I pitch a compelling story to? Oh, you know, um, this person looks like they would be great to work with, and they and they study disgust, and so um, I'll play up disgust. And and actually, it's because I was playing up disgust that these people who are, you know, more qualified than me and better dressed than me, because I didn't know you're supposed to wear a <laughs> suit to these interviews. Um, <laughs> You know, I managed to, to get a spot in uh, Bumi Oltunji's lab at Vanderbilt um, mm. because of this disgust connection. I got there. I was like, oh, man, have I overpromised? You know, like, am I really going to be able to keep studying disgust? And the funny thing is I, I wasn't that disgust-focused until, like, the end of my Ph.D. And, um, and even then, like, I didn't have the disgust bug. Then I got a job at a liberal liberal, uh, liberal arts college, and um, I taught a seminar on disgust.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And then I was, like, hooked. You know, but it wasn't until I did this deep dive where I just like read a bunch of stuff outside the discipline of psychology and like some historical texts in psychology, like Andrus Angel from like 1941. So there's older stuff that's informing Roslyn I didn't know about. Mm. And then I was like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. And uh, but I did, you know, along the way, I did have one experience and it was my first um My first patient in in a practicum, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: uh, in in an anxiety disorder practicum, and um, this person presented with OCD, and disgust was just like this organizing theme. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and he was really concerned, um, and I have uh, his consent to talk about this in educational purposes in classrooms and places like this, Um, so uh, he was really uh, concerned about um, semen. And mm. getting semen on other people and then being mm. the object of someone's disgust and moral disgust. Ah, that's
0: so interesting.
2: And, you know, the interesting thing about OCD, like the doubter's disease, and it really goes after taboo things. Right. So, like, when I was at um, McLean Hospital um, at the OCD Institute there, there had been sort of this, this group called the poop group. And there were people, like college students, there were, right. um, you know, ladies in their 70s who yeah. were, you know, obsessed with um, not being you know completely responsible uh, with uh, personal hygiene related to going poop and uh-huh. because no one talks about it so you know, there's nowhere you can look up like how exactly do I do this um, because it's taboo and so because it's taboo, it's this area you know where OCD can kind of latch on and fester uh-huh. and so it's same thing with like semen disposal after one masturbates you know like um, there's there's not like some CDC checklist, To be like, did I do this right? And um, so he was really concerned about like um, his semen. And um, but then I found out later on that uh, this person had a food neophobia and they only ate like a really sort of restricted Mm. range of food and they really wanted to like eat ethnic cuisine that they Mm. weren't familiar Mm -hmm. with. But when they started to eat it, they would think of okra. And then they would think of the texture of okra and be a grossed out.
1: Slimy. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, you know, the texture is somewhat like semen. Uh, um, and there's a sort of, you know, um, chicken-egg thing with like, okay, was it? were you bothered by okra first? Was it semen? And it, mm. it turned out it was the okra. The, the food neophobia came first. But anyways, that got me fascinated. But it was really actually sort of taking this deep dive um, as, uh, as a college professor that, like, made me think, I just want to study this all the time.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That's a, it is. How how would you approach treatment if someone's presenting that way?
2: Well, that is a question mark because, yeah. um, yeah. And you know, one of the things about disgust is like not a lot of people study it. Mm. I don't think it's like probably I could count on one hand or even less than one hand's worth of fingers. How many grants have been, um, given to study disgust. Most people who mm. do it, it's like they're kind of a side gig or at least one of many things they're doing. And we don't know a lot about disgust and often, um, there are these, you know, widely held assumptions that are like actually foundational to a lot of disgust theory that are, they rest on shaky data. And mm-hmm. that's probably all psychology. But like, there's this idea <laughs> that disgust is cognitively impenetrable, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, like when you're seeing that fudge, it's shaped like poop. Like mm-hmm. the fact that it looks, it's almost like a cog, like a visual illusion. Like you can't undo yeah. the percept, like you can't undo the disgust. And um, so that, that one experimental demonstration has been really influential to make people think, okay, cognitive therapy is not going to work. Mm. Um, maybe it would work. Um, but there's this, this notion that you can't change the cognitive therapy. There's this notion that it doesn't habituate or undergo extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I've tried to to study that. And and I've, I have found that, that disgust doesn't habituate much. Um, the evidence for extinction learning, I believe it, but it's really there actually aren't great demonstrations. What there is is um, evidence that taste aversion learning doesn't mm. undergo extinction easily. We Most of us have... Um, I think they call it the Bernays sauce effect Um, but you know most of us have some example of a conditioned taste version we carry through the rest of our life Mm -hmm. Um, but like it's not clear if that really applies to all disgust so but um, but long story short I think there are enough clinical anecdotes and enough finds and research to suggest that there's something peculiar about disgust and disgust doesn't seem to respond to treatment and that was my own experience so Mm -hmm. in terms of what do you do well one thing that might just take is more exposure so um, mm-hmm. Paul Rosin found that with a, um, a cohort of medical students at, at UPenn going through a cadaver rotation, mm-hmm. they they did become, you know, after three months, less disgusted by cold dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And some domains of disgust that were relevant, like body invoke violations went down. Um, mm-hmm. Disgust sensitivity, that is so just individual differences. Um, on the other hand, they were still disgusted by warm dead bodies. So wow. there's this sort of narrow habituation that occurs, but like the actual mechanisms of change there are unclear. Like was it just mere you know, just raw exposure and habituation, or was it some sort of, you know, um were they uh sort of process of socialization into med school? Mm-hmm. Was it um you know the goal pursuit um of, you know, trying to get a good grade, who knows? Um but there is, you know, there's some evidence that people do overcome disgust, like in dirty jobs. Right. And so like what therapists should be doing in my opinion, is actually you know, doing more sort of observational work on discussing the real world, find people who work dirty jobs, find mm. people who are getting over-disgust, succeeding at it, and figure out what they're doing. Um,
0: yeah. That's, that's so interesting. It reminds you of a couple of things. One, the article – I posted an article in uh, – as a kind of preparation. It's from the New Yorker, I think. Yes. And she wrote about foods, you know, that are considered disgusting in one area but not in another. It's just this, this – this the Museum of Disgusting Food in, in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that the author wrote about was how she, she was Chinese but then came from China and then would find like certain cheeses here in America yeah. like or pizza. I was like, oh, my God, yeah. this is horrible. But eventually, by just eating enough of it and being exposed enough to it, eventually it just becomes part of her, part of her palate, yes. right? Yeah. So that reduction yeah. in disgust uh, Yeah, oh, that was
2: such a great article. Right? So and, that, and so the question, you know, the question is, how does that happen? Is right. it like... And if you think about, you know, um uh, you know I have a I have a friend and collaborator um who talks about durian and um right they, they were they were initially grossed out by durian then they started to enjoy it then they even became uh they then they even came to enjoy the smell right. of durian right and so um and that makes me think of this example like the thing about food
1: I'll and, and to sex too. what is it yeah, that you're saying
2: Durian. durian. It's a It's that stinky fruit. Oh. There's like laws against it. Like you can't have oh. durian in a hotel room in some
1: countries. <laughs> oh, okay. Um,
0: it's on my list of things at, to eat. Oh,
2: Yeah,
1: okay. and
2: but the thing about it, you know, so the thing about food, the thing about sex is that these things are also rewarding. You know, right. foods are um, primary reinforcers, and so, like in that case, you know, and I don't know how much this applies to the other clinical context, Kate, to get back to your question, because, you know, with food and sex, like, you know, if you can get hang in there long enough there's this reinforcement that activates a competing drive you know um or, or satiates a competing drive and so there's there's that factor and then there's also counter conditioning with that pleasure so it's all these processes going on when you're talking about eating food or having sex mm-hmm. um and so but i wonder like how's that going to apply to uh phobia of frogs mm-hmm. you know do you eat
1: the frogs i have as i've mentioned on the show for some reason before <laughs> um and that doesn't i mean i well i haven't eaten meat except by accident in a very long time because i've been vegetarian for a long time but that didn't bother me so i do really think it is like you were saying the the physical properties that and the surprise is more of the Mm. phobia thing Mm, you know so i think i really for some reason having it being served like there's a part of me that's like oh that's kind of frog legs or whatever that's kind Ah, of gross or something but it's not But I tried it and it wasn't because I wasn't afraid of frogs at the time. So I don't know. Um, Or maybe I just haven't been exposed to frog legs in so many years that I, at this Mm. point, you don't have like a... Some frog legs handy in your office, Do you With your <laughs> other stimuli. Just,
2: so, just so, you know, <laughs> just I have the thing. My... Let's
1: test her out. Do you have a plate of? Frog
2: All I have eggs? is I've got a spider right here. Yeah. But no. I don't have any. I don't have any frog legs. But that's okay. That's really interesting. So, huh, oh, I, mean, I mean, I think that really gets at something. You interesting make me here. feel
1: so interesting for just being kind of wimpy about frogs. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, this is already very healing because. Yeah. Non-specific factors of genuine interest affirming you know mm. thorough assessment I'm
2: mm-hmm. already feeling a lot better I kind of get back into therapy it's <laughs> I've, I've been able to provide therapy since before COVID so um <laughs> uh I mean I just really interesting that you can eat them and it doesn't bother you I mean that's fascinating that it's and that speak I mean to me that sounds like disgust because it's I mean, disgust does generalize in some ways, but in some ways it doesn't. Like, I mean, the poop emoji. The poop uh, the poop emoji is all over the place. Like, before they yeah. tore down the Kmart in Walla Walla, I saw, uh, you know, they had, like, towels. They had, they had, like, oh uh, yeah, you can buy yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, poop yeah. emoji, everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, once you abstract away from the concrete sensory features of the most disgusting, the thing just doesn't really become disgusting anymore. It's not like sort of the, you know, the concept of frog itself. Whereas I wonder, you know, I hear about, people with dog phobias who are like afraid of Snoopy, you know, and there's this, you know, really loose generalization gradient. And, you know, definitely it's easy to imagine someone who's like, you know, gets bit by a pit bull, being afraid of like a a poodle, even though, you know, in terms of their perceptual features, they're quite different, easy to discriminate. And, you know, this is something you could do research on, but I feel like there's not a lot of conceptual generalization with disgust because like, you know, you're eating the thing that disgusts you the most and because it's in a different form it doesn't have the same sliminess the same, same appearance maybe it's not the frog that jumped on you in florida
1: right it's not this oh i i was just gonna say i recently started watching um i was watching one of those reality competition shows where they eat stuff that most people find disgustingly. leo would probably be fine with it but it's like <laughs> you know, fly covered food or animal parts that people don't usually eat. And their approach was, well, first of all, they did vomit a lot. So I'm not going to (laughs) say this is effective, but they, uh, the most effective ones were imagining it was something else. And I don't know if they had a much more vivid imagination, which is avoidance, which obviously in a lot of places we wouldn't recommend that. But in this case,
0: yeah, in a reality in competition yeah.
1: with gross foods, that seemed to be really adaptive. They're like, oh, yeah. you know, this is pizza that I'm eating or whatever. This is chocolate or whatever. Like, and what is this? Help.
2: This this sounds like just gold to me. This show where people I talk don't even about- <laughs> want
1: to say it because it's so bad. Do you remember nine hundred years ago when there was the real world Road Rules challenge on MTV? Yeah. Well, apparently they still make seasons, and I recently watched season thirty six. Of oh, Road <laughs> Rules. What? Yes, I know, and I hadn't watched it in Jesus years, but it was on way, Hulu.
0: I, that, you made me feel very, oh, wow. very and really you know, feel...
1: they, eat, Well, they still have some of the same people huh. on who are now huh. in their 40s. One just turned okay. 50, and then they have some new people. But it's a regular feature now that they eat gross foods. That's usually one of oh. the challenges.
2: Okay, I mean, so no, what you no, described no, is – so that is exciting to me because I, I lifted up this – the listeners at home can't hear, can't see this, but I have this fake dog poop well, here. Yeah, we're we'll going to have to take a screenshot of that. Uh, yeah. For and, <laughs> um, I, I don't, I don't want to get scooped, so I won't tell you too much about the story. But, you know, one of my – the story I've been – or the study I've been working on for way too long. Um, I need to get it out. But, you know, I'm trying to see, like, what happens when you learn that poop is fake? Like, does it stop disgusting you? It sort of mm. – Uh, revisiting um, Paul Rosin's law of similarities, just enough that it looks like poop is that sufficient to make it gross. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, what I find is that actually learning that poop is fake makes it less disgusting. And um, at least in some channels, some forms are responding. Uh, So I'll save some excitement for the paper. I'll I'll leave that, no more spoilers. But, um, you know, the example from Paul Rosin, I think, is like, you think you're eating horse meat, you're like, oh, gross. And you find out it's... um, it's cow meat. And, you know, mm-hmm. if you're in a culture that has taboos against eating horses, then you're like, oh, phew, this is yummy, good. No yeah. longer disgusted. Um, but so, you know, my research example, Paul Roslin's example of conceptual reorientation, it's something that you had a misconception about and then you learn what it really is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the question that comes to my mind, and I think since some audience members that I presented this work to is like, oh, is that really going to work? When it's the other way around, like when Mm -hmm. the thing really is potentially gross and, you know, can you get them to rethink it in a way that's maybe fictitious or at least, you know, not how most people would see it. And so that's exciting to me that that worked for this person, that they're able to find you
1: some clips because it is really like it's kind of interesting because they definitely I mean, there are probably some differences, but at least one or two of them. That was their strategy is just like saying aloud what they're imagining they're eating and kind of getting through it.
2: Wow. And um, here's where it gets in. Yeah, it's so interesting. That's so interesting. Because, you know, and so here's another thing that perplexity about disgust is that it's so sensory. Like your example with the frogs. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the sliminess, the stuff like that. And yet it is, as Rosin would say, ideational. Like it is about our ideas of the things. And what Rosin said once is that food has to not only taste good, it also has to think good. And so, like, if you're um, eating something, the texture reminds you of something gross, then it's not going to think good, um, and so maybe you can rethink it. You know, so maybe you, maybe the, the challenge is to make the food think good. So what was the thing that they were eating and rethinking?
1: There were a variety since I've watched several seasons since discovering <laughs> it was on Hulu. But um, it's one one thing that they did actually did make them sick, which was they ate um, what are those very hot peppers? The Reaper, the Carolina the Reaper. Reaper, yeah, Carolina Reaper. Yeah, and that actually made many of them sick but then there was stuff like rotted cheese things like that i think like the heart of a goat or something like it was stuff like that
2: so Mm -hmm. the heart of a goat's a good one because you know you cook up that cook that up and um i so i'm mostly vegetarian too i've never and i haven't eaten a lot of organ meat in my life Mm -hmm. but i'm guessing that the heart of a goat you know you cook it up you don't tell people what it is you could easily think that it was something that you that you ate
0: But I've only, so this, well, a couple couple of things. One thing that reminded me of when you are talking about being able to eat the frog is that most people eat, you know, people who are meat eaters are going to eat cow or pork or whatever, and they'll have no problem with that, but they will have a problem with dealing with the actual animal itself. Like a a pig itself itself can be a little bit gross, and just the, the, the physiology of it can be a little bit much. But people eating it, that's that's not a problem. Um, so I would say, you know, like, you know, pe- or people who have a problem, you know, executing the animal, like the, dealing with the yeah. gross aspects yeah. of, yeah, putting the animal down and cleaning it, and like people who are, are hunters, right? So they do. And they, yeah. So people are like, yeah. oh my god, no, I'm not going to do that, that's terrible. But I'm like, dude, that is part of the process of getting the meat. You have yeah. no problem with the nicely proce- processed processed mm-hmm. and product, but the actual where it comes from, that and that separation, maybe that's what's helping with with Katie's ranitaphobia and her ability to uh, be yeah. ranito, ranita, what do gastr ga, gastro I don't know what it would be what what's the what's the what would be the for something oh gastropod no when you eat something gastro no <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, yeah you mentioned
2: the the interesting uh, thing about uh, meat. And, you know, I think that in the discussed literature when people theorize about that, they overgeneralize way too much, you know, across cultures and history and things like that. Um, I think it's probably just, you know, within their social circles or sort of social strat, uh, stratum. But there, you, know, you can definitely see this aversion to um, animality, like animal reminders in uh, people's uh, uh, consumption of meat. So, people don't want to know the history of the meat. Unless it's a, a you know a lovely history, which you know most of meat doesn't have that lovely history, um, and they don't want remi- yeah reminders that it's a dead animal, right. and and this is you know there are obviously exceptions, but you know most or you meat miss is the name of
0: the meat and everything. Yeah, exactly. Everything yeah. has that as a different name. It's, it's chicken,
1: yeah, even exactly.
0: A chicken, right? Uh, you'd be oh, from a rhinitophobia to rhinitivore. That would be. Like oh, ren- see? Renad- now
1: we're talking.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah,
2: I mean, it, like with organ meat too, like organ meat is considered disgusting. You know, it's also considered, and here's a really critical thing too, it's also considered low class, right? Although it's, that's I know so it's been, um,
0: you know, redeemed by by chefs and things like that. Sure. But, um, but that's a part of the culture, right? Because I grew up eating uh Longanisa and chorizo and things that are made out of. You take the guts and yeah. not only do you eat yeah. the guts, but you you put one gut inside of another gut yeah. and fry yeah. that and eat that. and yeah. Eyes, know fish yeah. eyes and tongue. Yeah. And uh, and definitely how I've had cow heart, which is actually it's not my favorite, but it's pretty good. Yeah. And tongue is delicious. Mm. And this this is just because you know like your audience. The, what, I was both judged and uh, managed <laughs> to make them both Tom and. No, Katie. I am not. <laughs> I'm not judging
1: I, you at all. No, uh, I'm, not, I'm not judging you either. I <laughs> I think that this really helps shape the picture of where you've right. landed. And ter- I mean, it shows they, how much they, that that influence, along with some individual differences that may have been inherited, so to these. your openness. To experience mm-hmm. with foods,
0: we'll take a we'll take a snapshot of that, dear audience, and we will let you judge depending on the faces.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know,
2: just an interesting point here is that like you know, thinking psychology often is not very like sociologically informed, right? Um, uh, and in the theorizing about disgust and meat, it's like oh, this is an, a reminder of our animal nature, and it's you know we've got to manage the terror and. Um, and, but, like, if you look at and – and one of the observations is, that like, oh, like, we only eat muscle. And there's, like, taboos around eating organ meat. But, you know, the, this other sort of dimension is that organ meat is considered low class. And mm-hmm. and I return to that because yeah. – um, and, you know, you, that, of course, in a specific cultural context, right, where, right. where like, um, you know, people don't have these culinary traditions of e- rich culinary traditions of eating entire tari- animals and stuff like that. Um, but I return to that because, like, so much of disgust – is about cultural taste and about um, you know distinguishing um, oneself from people who are below you on the cultural pecking order. Yeah. Um, William E. Miller has this great book, Anatomy of Disgust, that is really historically informed and uh, informed by a lot of literature and uh, a, lot of a deep historical dive into, into the uh, novels. And, um, he argues that you can't imagine human culture without disgust
0: mm-hmm. and
2: that it orders our social cosmos. Um, and you know, I remember if, that, um, that, that, like if you, that movie, uh, Mama Tambien. Yeah, yeah. 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 I always mispronounce the director's name. So help me out here. So I don't just botch the I don't remember his name. Um, so in the film, Itou Mama Tambien, you know, you can see this sort of disgust, uh, you know, uh, related to class in this friendship, right. Between these two young men and, um, when the sort of the bourgeois, um, young man is in, in the home of the the working class uh-huh. uh, young man. You know he's lifting the toilet seat with his foot. He's you know doing all these things and um, disgusted by all these. Uh, forgot about uh, that. Yeah, things related to what he perceives as, as lower class life. Um, but so you know that's something that's interesting. You know we won't get into it, but I mentioned that the sort of the politics of the chav in the UK. Right, Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is sort of disgust-based, and it's really just sort of classism uh, disguised as just being about cultural
0: taste. Mm -hmm. Um, But But even like if you look back, that's interesting that we use the word taste to describe fashion, right? Yeah. Or when somebody has high taste, you know, right? So it's like, oh, this person has a sense of fashion or not, or whether that fashion uh, falls within the bounds of what's considered decent or normal or high, or as you said, high class versus low class, right? And then yes. those people go out of their way to be, you know, extravagant in one way or another. But maybe because yes. in some cases it would be high class versus low class, I guess. That's yeah. interesting. And just if, about you,
2: if you look at like um, the etymology of disgust, mm-hmm. it makes it into the English language from French in like the 16th century. And at the time, there is um, this sort of uh, there's this explosion of disgust in a way in that um, there are. Well, there there's there's increased refinement, you know, and the sort sure. of uh, I forget the name of the, the author of the, this work, but like the, um, the civilizing uh, process something like that, where where people's uh, sense of delicacy is just mm. expanding. And there's you know more and more sort of norms and prohibitions about yeah. the body and things like that. Um, and so disgust makes it into English psychologists take it literally they're like oh yeah you know look at the etymology of disgust it's distaste clearly it has to do with the mouth, the mouth and gustation but really mm. it's probably not literal it probably at the time um you know a lot of people were uh having the sort of dis- cultural distaste towards um other people's behavior mm-hmm. and and so uh you know if even just the etymological origins of disgust in english kind of speak to how disgust sort of intertwined with uh, class and culture and um, and sort of distinguishing oneself from someone beneath you mm-hmm. by your sense of refinement and
0: delicacy. That's so interesting. And if I could just kind of hook it back a little bit to, it, now that we're kind of taking back back to a cultural kind of sociological perspective, um, in thinking about shifting attitudes, so when you think about shifting attitudes, individual disgust, or a person who's able to get over disgust regarding whatever stimulus, I kept thinking about how attitudes toward, certain sexuality in the US has shifted, right? So the attitudes toward divorce have certainly shifted in society as as it's become more normative. But in the US, it seems like a lot of the debate regarding uh, same-sex marriage, for example, a lot of that debate was informed by people, making by moral judgments Yeah, that were lathered in the in the language of disgust. Right. So there there were there were uh, for people who were against it. It was an affront to their morality. And oftentimes they said that that type of sexuality was disgusting, however conceived. But then as you see the attitudes towards same sex marriage and relationships and gay rights, you see that there is the proportion of the people who were disgusted by the by gay marriage, or same-sex relationships has steadily decreased. So you kind of see that disgust, yeah. uh, has that cultural influence of it and how it can actually change by f- increasing familiarity. And that when you talk to gay yeah. rights activists, I would say you know, a big part of the effort to change attitudes was to make personal connections with people. to be like, look, I am your brothers, sisters, cousins, mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. around you and just like you in so many ways and reducing that barrier that maybe you were alluding yeah. to that is like, you know, you are there and we're here. We, yeah, and what, what separates us, so that's a, It's an interesting yeah.
2: parallel, you know, and that's interesting too because there's like that, you know, people talk about that, that when they talk about disgust and how cognitively impenetrable it is, you mm-hmm. know, how resistant mm-hmm. to corrective information it is because, um, you know, gay marriage doesn't work anymore as a moral dumbfounding issue, right? Uh, but it used to, right. and you ask people. Uh, you know, people who are politically conservative or hostile to the rights of gay folks. You ask them their thoughts on on gay marriage. They say it's wrong. You ask mm-hmm. them why, and then they you know they struggle to come up with a coherent answer. So it seems to be sort of this intuitive response, perhaps driven by disgust. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people point to the, the rapid change in attitudes right. um, around um, you know gay marriage to say, well, maybe disgust you know maybe it is open to information. Right. And you mentioned all these different processes that help, but I wonder too, like you know how much has um how much has changed and you know i actually sort of stopped teaching disgust and homophobia in my class because i was just sort of uncomfortable because a lot of the the discourse made it sound as though like disgust was like a normative response to homosexuality um but you know i've been thinking about it more recently with that montero video by lil nas x yeah. oh yeah because that video you know broke this taboo in sort of uh, you know representing queer lust and Um, also, you know, men hooking up with men, or MM -hmm. MM sex, as they call it in in the sexology literature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one finding to this day is that both straight men and um, straight women, or people who, you know, identify as predominantly straight, um, they will avoid looking at MM sex, so men having sex with men, when Mm -hmm. it's depicted in film or in in images, in eye tracking studies. Uh Um, And so there's still something there, but then (laughs) you've got this little Nas X video, and yeah. it's broke the Internet, right? It's yeah. downloaded more than anything ever on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's some you – know, it's possible in the case of you know, homophobia that there hasn't been enough – because of these taboos that still exist in what's visually represented, there hasn't been enough exposure. So there's been a lot of change through other processes, but there mm-hmm. might be some, you know, some you know, hidden disgust in places that still sort of needs to see
0: sunlight. Yeah. So when you're talking about things like homophobia, of course, there are people who are going to say that there are maybe people who are afraid of their own homopho- uh, homosexual impulses. And that's what the reason why they make a point of avoiding it because they're just trying to correct that. So that's that's fair. And I can see that. But then it makes you think of people uh, when, when you mentioned about uh, that they avert their eyes, how there's a whole subgenre of um, there's, a, there's a book called uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts, which is really good. It was by a computational neuroscientists looking at, the downloaded a bunch of um, computer searches of, for pornography from the internet from a span of years, to mm-hmm. so see what, people, what, what kind of, what were the pornography searches that we're doing? And a lot of it was kind of what you would expect, you know, the archetypes of kind of just heteronormative sex. But then we started like digging more into the, you know, in, in the kind of the lower quartiles, but still significant numbers of those searches would be for like same sex uh, uh, scenarios but, include, but often by women, who, by like straight women who are attr- not just attracted to that. There's something that is uh, stimulating by same sex uh, in, in a way that would be not perhaps the stereotype of a straight man looking for uh, same sex women having sex, that kind of thing. But it was, it was the theorized different reasons for that. But it, it's, it's really, to me, it's interesting to start thinking about kind of what are the, 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 those exceptions to the rule? And what might be the yeah. um, hmm. the reason why for some people, right, uh, things that may be avert, you know, maybe either aversive mm-hmm. or not attracted to some, it it attracts them. It's, and I want to make it very clear yeah. that I'm making a very a very yeah. clear division between, you know, same-sex sexual behavior and then some fetishes that includes disgusting stimuli. I'm just thinking about mm-hmm. what is it, for some people that they may find um, disgusting. Um, Stimuli that most people would find disgusting that finds it that makes it attractive to them or mm-hmm. what is it that makes it stimulating to them?
2: Yeah, so uh, so I'm not a, uh, an expert in incest and I'm also not an expert in in paraphilia and and sexual disorders I'm, I'm happy to chat about them but really quickly. Yeah, just yeah, like, um, you know, I I have been uh, collaborating with um, Samantha Dawson who's a, uh, and this is a professor at University of British Columbia and um, I am just like amazed by the world of sex research yeah. because it's, yeah, it's it's like awesome. siloed off, you know, like yeah. the ma- mainstream journals when you know, when you submit sex research to them, they often say, oh, that's specialty work, you know, send it to the right. sex journal. There's this amazing work that I wish um, were being published in, you know, mainstream experimental psychology and emotion journals. Mm. Um, so just a quick plug for, for some of this um, sexology research. Um, but uh, so. You know, in relation to like how disgusting things become uh, the the object of desire. Yeah. Um, I have to just mention Freud here because you know, sure. F- Freud's theory, and I'm probably gonna get this wrong. I get some angry emails. Is that um, <laughs> uh, Freud's theory is that uh, disgust is protecting against forbidden desires, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, you, you know, you're having disgust towards um, you know sexual things, for example, because you really want them. And then the question becomes, well, what about some of these like um, this bodily excrement and stuff that we right, find right. uh, universally disgusting? We talked about yeah. cultural differences, but poop, universal disgust, listener. Um, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you know, we kind of chatted about this before, but you, you know, on the one hand, I think it's Freud said something about the, how it's sort of um, unfortunate that the end of the digestive tract and the genitals are so close together. Um, but there could be something, <laughs> you know, with that proximity. It's easy to, you know, you think about association learning. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I don't know that, I don't know much about erogenous zones, but I know that, you know, there, there's potentially a lot of, um, pleasure involved, um, with, uh, you know, sort of the, the source of feces, um, right. and so like, that's where my guesses would be, but I, I don't know, you're the one who studies problematic sexual attraction, right. so I'm curious what you think.
0: Yeah, well, so that's the, that's the part that I, so I, the case that I'm thinking of and, um. Is uh, There was a case, well, it was at, uh, let me see, how can I, a clinical case uh, that I was, that I heard about was a, is related to a person who had, it's, there's, a, there's a syndrome called uh, Klüver-Bucy syndrome, and you can see you, the people have observed it in mostly like in primates, but also in humans, in which they become kind of indiscriminate, they, there's, it's combined by kind of indiscriminate yeah. sexual drive, and not just indiscriminate, yeah. but a very high sexual drive, and it seems to be related to perhaps Uh, Injury to prefrontal cortex and limbic areas, Uh but essentially you can have these in, in primates you can see let's imagine uh Rhesus monkeys That all of a sudden they start mounting you know the male will start mounting other males or inanimate objects uh yeah. or you know in infant primates which is completely you know, even in that it's inappropriate not, not to do and then in humans there was in this particular human case that i have uh, case case report that i heard about was a person they became indiscriminate and so they were just like basically any and all but they can particularly fixated on feces and they would okay. find um katie brace yourself uh <laughs> they thank would you find, for my
1: disgust yeah, trigger warning
0: disgust, tr- disgust trigger warning they would find that uh used uh, on the highway and masturbate with them oh my god that's that is <laughs> disgusting
2: yeah so many levels yes. um yes well, and thank so you that, for having that, me on your show to talk about <laughs> masturbating with outside. So, both sides so <laughs> Tom,
1: who's an
0: expert? Uh, what
1: do you? you That—that's that, like our very, teaser clip right there. Everyone's going to tune in.
2: <laughs> Someone needed to dethrone all of the disgust vignettes from before. Mark and Julie—they're going down. Um, chicken man—you'll have to Google that one. Chicken man. Chicken man has been defeated. Did
0: I have sex with a chicken. Uh,
2: yeah, and then he then he eats it. <laughs> Or I think he, oh, yeah. he either eats it or he gives it to his neighbors to eat.
0: Yeah. Oh, I know. It's a joke. I mean, I hear you think it's a yeah. joke, but yeah. I, is,
2: I, it's not a joke in disgust research. This is like, you know, a, some scientific endeavor uh, yes. trying to figure out why people are bothered by Chicken Man. Um, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. But so, Gee, yeah, I, I mean, wonder I wonder why Nida does not want to give you guys money. <laughs>
2: but, you know, my response here is is telling because... I hear that, and I think, like, oh, that's taboo. I can't talk about this on on, on this podcast. I, I can't talk about this with the, your millions <laughs> of listeners. Um, <laughs>
0: oh, and, really. well, uh... Like nation is
2: yeah. um, So, but, look, this is an important clinical phenomenon. If someone's doing that, I mean, especially assuming there's lots of other people w- with presenting with the same condition. Um, so, we it. should it's take this rare. seriously. BC,
0: but I was going to say, clover itself is fairly rare. However, okay. people mm-hmm. with you know people with fetishes that are problematic you know when, when yeah. they're engaging in the behavior in a way that is compulsive against somebody else's wishes yeah. or in a way that it's illegal then it becomes problematic right so it's really interesting yeah. when you you know for people who are you, you know engaging in and I'm going to say I'm going to use the word fetish in a, in a in a sex positive way in a, yeah. in, a in a very sex positive very consensual Right, uh, So kink, we're going to use the word kink uh-huh, instead. Uh-huh. Um, then it's not problematic. However, when the person starts doing it uh, with people who are strangers or unwilling victim or unwilling partners and or victims, uh, then it becomes problematic. And it is really it becomes interesting to see, you know what, what is the source, what is the what is the etiology of these behaviors, and how can we then do something about it? Because obviously, it's distressing and impairing to that individual and potentially dangerous to others, right? So yeah. it is, it, it is because it's interesting how, and then if you want to get it and look at the larger literature, what is it about this behavior that makes most of us recoil, but for some yeah. individual, like this individual's brain, it's some, you know, something yeah. in that circuitry has just tweaked and make the, make, make it go. Yeah, I want some more of that. And that's interesting. And to me, it's, to me, it's also interesting to see how people are trying, you know, pain, right? So what do people engage yeah. in, uh, uh, masochistic or sadistic behavior yeah, sort
2: of benign uh, when masochism. most people are exactly
0: most people are going to be yeah. like I against it but for some people it's like yes more of that what is it about the neurobiology of those individuals that makes a stimulus that would make your behavior their behavioral inhibition system kind of pump the brakes for yeah. those people that actually yeah. activate more behavioral activation rather than inhibition yeah you know it does make me just think about the status of psychology
2: as we discuss this, because we sort of got to go to the, the, um, the sort of naive neurobiological accounts, mm. um, when there's probably some rich psychodynamic tradition of trying to think about, uh, you know, the, the, the psyche and how, how the ad attaches these things. And it, you know, they're probably equally valid. I don't know. Um, but I, or maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? I, I mean, cause it just seems like if you, I don't know, like the, maybe the, 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 uh, I don't. I don't know how to talk about this, but it seems like like there's probably someone out there who has given this stuff a lot of thought and written about it in sort of a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic framework. Who yeah. might? And I'm thinking about how like people are rediscovering um, some of these late 20th century um, psychoanalytic thinkers after pre- President Trump became president. But mm. you had a great. I love the narcissism episode. Sorry, I'm kind of oh, going thank off you. the rails yeah, yeah. Here, No,
0: that's great. Thank you. No, I, I would have to. They, I because I'm very neurobiological and kind of evolutionarily mm-hmm. perspective. Uh, the way I think about it is that there's some, you know, the the areas of the brain that are related yeah. to uh, to drives in general, to yeah. appetite. Yeah to yes. sex uh they're pretty mm-hmm. fairly close together and there is something about the innervation of and they're right next to the areas that are associated with also inhibition of behavior and so for people for who either through injury or neuroanatomy um those connections are just not this you know the average the same, they get transposed um somehow i say arousal that you know kind of like people who like scary movies that's the way i think about yeah. it so do you yeah. like scary movies, Katie? I can't, I don't even remember your, your, your I quote, have a man.
1: I have a very low startle response, so I don't enjoy them very much um, yeah. because I don't I don't get much out of them. Now, if it was a frog film, like, uh, <laughs> what was that? Magnolia, the frogs fall from oh, the sky. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That's a scary movie to me. So <laughs> the usual stuff, I find it a little too predictable. Really care, yes.
0: Moses and the seven plagues and the, the frogs are like, ah!
1: exactly i'm like now we're talking,
0: now That's we're talking. What no me. but what it reminds me is, is is people who are who are exactly like that you know they're they have a high sort of response are but they love scary movies and there's something about whatever it is that either they gain a sense of control over it or or it's just about the excitement of like that the safety of running a roller coaster you like it's going to yeah. all the heebie-jeebies of going fast but you're going to be safe and Within with people who engage in, in in sexual behaviors, you tend to you get to play with the arousal. So I think there's something about yeah. physiological arousal that is rewarding, and okay. it gets and that arousal, that that general arousal gets somehow linked with sexual arousal as well.
1: I see. Um,
0: yeah, and I think from a from so, okay. the, the phylogenetic perspective, if you look if you look at animals in general, having kind of having sex, it's not gentle. It's not you know I don't see otters bringing flowers to their mates they're just violent little critters oh, yeah
2: otters are terrible yeah
0: they have to like chemically
2: castrate them in the research programs on otters and at the zoo and stuff because the males they're, are so awful
1: they're awful yeah
0: they're terrible if, if if you haven't heard about otters katie they are like i've heard
1: about dolphins and i've heard enough yes, about animals are, after yeah, that they are
0: also little
2: birds start eating meat Okay, so you don't really need the symbolic in that yeah, account, so. right? I, it's I, just I, sort I, of, I, yeah. That's, well,
0: kind of, of, okay. that's, that's my explanation.
2: I mean, my best offering here is is just something I stumbled upon, which is that the first time you show people something gross, huh. they check it out. And this actually stumped me because I remember it was like four in the morning. And I couldn't sleep. I, woke up and I was like, I'll analyze the data from that study. I just ran. It was, and, um, <laughs> and I remember just looking at this Something data. Be like, like Can I just make sure it gets a little sleepy again. Yeah. And I looked, I looked at the data and I was like, what the heck's going on? Because it was like the first trial, people are looking at this, um, poop. And then the other image was like an infected, I think it was a toe with this terrible, um, wound. And, um, but these images, like people were really looking at in the first trial, then still more in the second trial, and then it kind of flipped. Um, and since then, in all these studies I run, it, it seems to be really just the first trial where it's focused, but people will, you know, I call it rubbernecking, you know, they'll just, uh-huh. they'll rubberneck, or uh-huh. gawk at this disgusting thing. Yeah. You know, I think it, if you look at um, the literature on curiosity, on interest, the model is that You know, novel stimuli that hold the perspective for greater understanding or sort of satiate this desire for um, Mm -hmm. uh, information—they elicit interest and curiosity. And um, and so I think, you know, things that are novel and that we we don't get to look at or contemplate, those things elicit interest and curiosity. And um, things that are taboo. We don't get to see and we don't get to contemplate and so i think a lot of the um you know the intrigue and the draw to discussing stimuli Uh is about um just the taboo nature of the stimuli that you don't get to see them very often so like when you drive by um and then and there's also the sort of you know it's nice to be in a position of you know what in the philosophy of aesthetics they call disinterested perspective where Mm -hmm. you know you don't have to worry about something happening with the object like it hurting you or you don't want to like get it and have it as your own like it's just contemplation so you know you're driving on the highway and you see like a rotting deer carcass mm-hmm. if you were jogging by it you know the disgust the desire to get away from the smell and stuff like that would predominate you wouldn't be interested in it but um from a distance it's like oh i've never seen mm-hmm. the insights of a deer oh mm-hmm. i've never seen the life cycle this way you know and it, it can become intriguing yeah
1: hey, that's that's really interesting because the things that draw our attention for their novelty or the forbidden nature of it Kind
0: of seem yeah. like they can play into that too. Yes. Yeah. So where do we land? Like so the, the the question that I have is kinda of where where do you land on discuss based morality? Just kinda of a little bit of a rejoinder. Yeah. And that yeah. Given that we kinda of, we touched about yeah, okay, foods. Well, I'm and, uh,
2: I'm really influenced your... by the work of Roger Giannis Um never met him in person. Never resume with him. I don't even know how I pronounce his last name right, but I, I've exchanged a couple emails and read a lot of his work. And he has this, and, and his uh, colleagues and students that he works with, but um, they have this theory of bodily moral disgust. Okay. And you know, he, you know, in line with um, like Ed Royce and these more conservative takes on disgust, you know, he says there's no such thing as like this purely abstract disgust. Like you can't be disgusted by like something like someone's tax policy, um, but there is a moral disgust, um, when it comes to, um, people violating norms for how you use your body. So not mm-hmm. norms, like more like, you know, abstract moral norms. Um, but like, you know, so you can be they, angry at a tax policy. Yeah. But you cannot be disgusted by it. Yes. Okay. Yes. But you might be disgusted if it, you know, if, if someone's yeah violating a norm for how you use one's body, for how you use your body. And, and that sort of grounds disgust, you know, in the corporal, um, and, and, and so that sort of seems more plausible to me. On the other hand, um, you have this sort of, um, cross-cultural and cross-historical phenomenon in which people mm-hmm. use the language of disgust to express moral outrage. Mm-hmm. And so you can see this like, you know, in the European tradition and going back to at least Shakespeare and, and further, um, and in the present moment, you can see this cross cultures. And so, um, you know there's something there but in terms of whether like this evolved um you know pathogen defense mechanism that we call disgust whether that's being activated by moral transgressions i think most of the time it's not but it, and it's more of a rhetorical act in mm-hmm. a metaphor you know like you disgust me for um you know your racism disgusts me he says right someone. right i don't right. think that, you know, I think people, you know, they're saying that in a in a genuine way, mm. um, but I don't think they're experiencing the same disgust they would experience like, um, you know, seeing a diaper on the side of the road. In your mind, you're disgusted. You know, you say you're disgusted by, you know, hearing a Fox talking head say something racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't think when when we speak that way, it's not that, um, you know, we're deliberately misrepresenting our experience. Um. It's just that uh, I think it's more of a rhetorical act. I don't think you're reading out, you know, what's happening that's in your body saying, mm, you know what? I think that's a disgust I'm feeling towards you. It's a powerful thing to say, and yeah. it's powerful for lots of reasons. One reason is it suggests that you are, you know, you are low. You are you've mm-hmm. debased yourself by saying that, you know, like mm-hmm. um, so. So that's powerful. And um, and then also. When we experience disgust, it's sort of like black or white. You're not gonna talk me out of it. You know, like we talked earlier about disgust being cognitively impenetrable. Like if I tell you, um, you know, you your behavior disgusts me, you're not gonna be like, Well, no, you don't you know you gotta look at my behavior from this perspective. Like that's right. not gonna work. It's like this is over, this is what how I feel. Um so yeah, I mean the, the, the rhetorical use of disgust really deserves to be studied in its own right. So I'm not trying to, you know, dismiss moral disgust. It's just it's been taken so literally like you know i just read a study that had a bunch of cool parts to it but they were just you know there were these items where they were asking people like how disgusted are you and it was things like you know someone burning a flag Mm -hmm. and it's like that's Uh, i don't think that's disgust you know like someone burning a flag like you sure like that's the only word you can find to express your outrage Mm -hmm. but i don't think like you know your, your stomach's turning Right. so anger
0: or outrage would be perhaps yeah, yeah okay that's
2: fair you No, know, i think with with morality and disgust again we're just sort of like grabbing it the wrong way like as psychologists, we want to see like you know there's been this holy grail to find some really abstract moral disgust elicitor and then demonstrate you know psychophysiologically um uh somehow that the body is experiencing disgust and that was like mm-hmm. the holy grail and there was like you know um science papers psych science papers um you know reporting evidence that's now, you know, has either been not replicated or due to the sample sizes just doesn't look mm-hmm. reliable. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, and Nina Strominger calls it, you know, the white whale of disgust research. Um, uh, this, this you know, this thing that people have been fruitlessly chasing and wasting their careers on. Uh, not actually wasting <laughs> their careers on, but
0: so. <laughs> and bullishing in, in psych science.
2: Yeah, so like, I kind of think that's the wrong way to look at it because it's so fascinating that the language of disgust is wrapped up um, with morality
1: mm.
2: and, um, and I think it's worth sort of distinguishing between the disgusting and disgust as it's experienced you know what um, and, and sort of culturally um, what gets how we construct like purity and pollution and um, how uh, how that sort of binary then um, organizes and orders society and cultural practices and rituals and things like that so I'd like to see you know the rise of another Paul Rosen um, you know, someone who will take this more cultural perspective on disgust and perhaps, you know, maybe modernize it in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, this is not, um, you know, uh, criticizing Paul Rosen, but, you know, the, the cultural anthropologists he, were read, he was reading, like some of them were, you know, rather racist and colonial. And,
0: mm-hmm,
2: um, you know, it, it's someone who would sort of update that work. Um, would be pretty exciting because, and right now, like, the most exciting stuff I read on discuss is from outside the field, like that New Yorker article. Right. Um, or some of the work in disability studies or, uh, and, and that's not shade about the research that's
1: right. being done okay, in psychology,
2: yeah. but, like, that's, I find that cultural stuff really exciting.
0: Cool.
1: I have one quick question. Do you, is there any truth to there being differences in disgust based on, like, political orientation?
2: Oh, I'm so glad yeah. you asked. So I was trying to research I was trying to study for that right before this <laughs> meeting. You know, that is another one of these discussed findings that is more complicated than it first looked mm. because um, it seems to depend. And, and you know, you, you you can articulate that hypothesis in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, you know, originally it was just conservatives are more easily grossed out. And, mm. you know, there's a, a recent finding in JPSP that uh people who have more bitter taste bud receptors in their mouth are are more politically conservative. It's kind of, mm. you know, finding you'd expect to find in that journal ten years ago it's right. got some of the new open science practices. It's hard to know what to think, because my priors now say, no, that's impossible. Like mm. it'd be hard for me to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um but so that's kind of the strong hypothesis, right? That there's this really sort of tight link between disgust sensitivity and politics. Mm-hmm. Um on the other hand, these differences you see between conservatives and liberals in terms of their disgust sensitivity, they disappear when you measure disgust in certain ways. And so if you don't mm-hmm. refer to specific elicitors, like if you look at the disgust scale, it's like I would eat monkey brains. I would like put mm-hmm. a condom over a banana and put it over my mouth or something like that. I think that's, I'm fusing two items there, but you know stuff like that. And so if you if you don't ask about these specific sort of morally, politically loaded things, like um there used to be an item on a longer discuss scale about homosexuality. If you don't if you don't put these mm. loaded um sort of uh. Uh, things on there, then it disappears. If or if, if you ask about discussing the abstract, it disappears. Uh. If you sh- if you show people pictures of what's being depicted rather than asking if they do certain things, a recent mm-hmm. paper su- suggested the difference the, the link to conservatism and ideology disappears. disappears. That's interesting. So, yeah. And then one study says, no, it's not really pathogen disgust. It's actually sexual disgust. Mm. Um, but if, if you look at the items on the sexual disgust scale, a lot of it's about, um, you know, uh, violating norms, moral norms around sexuality and, and traditional uh, traditionalism, things like that. So, you know, it, I think the strong hypotheses about like the stronger hypotheses probably haven't held up. And the data is kind of murky, and it's not murky in the sort of p hacky way. It's just it's just complicated, mm. you know. And it depends on how we operationalize disgust and disgust sensitivity. So I think it's still intriguing, um, but I but like uh, it's hard to you, you know the, the more exciting like TED Talk style takes on it uh, mm. haven't held up. Cool. Thank you
1: so much for Thanks, describing Tom. that. I um Tom, where thank you so much for everything. Where can our listeners learn more about you where where can they follow you
2: you know i'm on twitter and my uh handle is Peep lab capital p e e p underscore lab now i realize i should have just done my name you know i missed being tagged <laughs> in some tweets about publications i was on cuz my handle was um odd but uh that's that's my handle you can find me on twitter and um and every year or so every 3 or 4 years i publish a paper so you can read my work too <laughs> uh, and it's on my website
1: that's great we'll, li- we'll link to your website and to your twitter handle in our show notes and just thank you so much tom this was yeah, a really fascinating discussion well, i we love
2: appreciate- talking to discuss and talking to you two in particular so it was a real blast and we'll i look be, forward to more episodes without me on them that i can listen to, next <laughs> to
1: <this. laughs> thank you
2: I really like your podcast because it's, like, some of the – it's funny, the podcast space, there's yeah. so many, like, blowhard dudes. Like, every, almost every podcast has a blowhard dude. Yeah. There's, like, a hard alpha male on every one.
0: <laughs> well, that's the part of the KD edits out every day. I, <laughs> that's, that's the, all, all my blowheartedness gets completely – so what you're saying is that you, I should accentuate that we're not, we're not really, we're, I'm not
1: doing the. Yeah, the no, it's. Only team. Yeah, that's what I'm
2: saying. I'm just emasculating you. <laughs> that was my goal. No.